Good morning, family of grace. It's good to see you guys. There are some days I get to come and share good news with you from God's Word, and it's really exciting, and it's a joy, and I can't wait to present like these awesome truths with you. And then there's these other days that I get to present God's Word to you, but it's not necessarily fun. It's not the, the conversation that you really want to have. It's a conversation you have to have. And this morning will be one of those. This morning, I get to talk to you guys about the wrath of God against sin, about judgment. And some of you may have grown up in that generation when you heard about God's holy wrath against sin all the time. You got like six lifetimes worth of that teaching. And maybe you, you imagine God as some angry, grumpy old dude in heaven who likes to squish people down and wants no one to have any fun ever. And thank God that is not the God that created heaven and earth, that that is not the God revealed to us by Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. But some of you may have grown up in the generation that reacted against the angry God in heaven. Maybe some of you guys grew up hearing all about God's love, that Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so, and God is this doting grandfather in heaven who just loves people and wants them to be happy, who never gets angry about anything, who never judges people or makes boundaries or makes rules, and that God is not the God that created heaven and earth. It is not the God that's revealed by Jesus Christ and in the scriptures. And I don't know this morning that I'm going to do justice to either one uh, of those extremes, but we're going to talk about God's wrath and God's justice this morning. So let me just be very upfront with you about what I'm hoping to do. I want to scare you. I want to frighten you. I want you and I and everyone else to walk home with, with a terror of God. Have you guys ever seen workplace safety videos? Their qualities have really improved in, in recent years. I YouTubed some of them recently, and, and the ones that I was looking for came with a warning before YouTube would even show it to me. It said, warning, the video that you are watching contains graphic material. Click here, click here to accept. And I like, stop, froze, checked. I'm, I'm looking for workplace safety videos, right? Yeah, okay. Because the videos contained images of people being burned and maimed and blinded and losing limbs. They are frightening and graphic and gut-wrenching. And these videos were created not to sensationalize violence. They were created not to make entertainment out of human suffering. They were created to make us afraid so that, the, so that we approach the materials and machinery that we work with with reverent fear for their destructive potential so that we and others can go on and flourish and thrive. Because you know what? Chemicals are awesome. Heavy machinery is awesome. They do great, great things. But if not approached cautiously and in the appropriate ways, they will destroy lives. Maybe yours, maybe someone else's. And these videos are designed to, to make us afraid enough to treat them correctly so that human life can flourish. So this morning, my attempt, I don't know if I'll achieve it, is to do a theological workplace safety video. 
to make us scared enough that we will approach our righteous and holy God in the correct way so that life will flourish. This is my point this morning that we need to look out because our righteously angry God is coming to deal with evil and sin. And it's not meant to terrify us. It's not meant to give us nightmares. And it's not meant to make us run away from God. Actually, it's a fear that should make us run towards Him. To approach Him with a holy and reverent fear that He is God and that we want to be on His side really badly. And this morning, we're going to be in Isaiah chapter 13 and 14. We're going to look at the judgment and oracles on Babylon and And I'm excited Aaron and Rebecca are going to come and just present the scriptures to us. But before they come, I have a couple things to say that I hope will will clear the way so that we can hear. I don't know about you guys when you go and read a confusing section of scripture like the prophets. And you don't know. I mean, there's so many things that go on in our heads when we try to read the Bible. I don't know about you. One of the questions is, is this historical Like, should we be thinking about the ancient Babylonian empire who had kings like Nebuchadnezzar and Merodach Baladan that that came in and swept out Judah and took them into captivity? Should we be thinking about that? Do we need ancient Near Eastern history to understand what's going on in our scriptures? Or is this metaphorical? Is this kind of like using Babylon, Babylon like a stock image, something that is meant to to help us understand our lives today, like historic or metaphorical. And I would love to take you on the breadcrumb trail that I went on this week as I was studying the passage, but I think predominantly we are supposed to interpret this metaphorically. Here's a couple, a few reasons why, and I'd love to talk to you more about it later. In Genesis chapter 11, there's a story about a city called Babel. Maybe you know it. It's about a group of humans that wanted to rebel and cast off God's plan for the world. And they were going to make a name for themselves. And so they built this gigantic tower, the structure that was going to reach to the heavens. But God actually had to come down to see it. And he humbled their human pride and rebellion and he scattered them across the world. And by the time we get to the New Testament, Babylon has become this stock image of human rebellion and pride. And so the Apostle Peter, speaking of the city of Rome, calls it Babylon. Or speaking about John in the book of Revelation, he talks about Babylon. Is it, is it Rome? Is it the Roman Empire? Well, kind of. It's maybe the best modern day case I can think of it is like if you or I called someone a Nazi today, We don't actually mean that they existed back in the 1930s and 40s as part of Hitler's regime. We are describing them as a type of person. And I think Babylon, as presented in these chapters in Isaiah, are more of that, a a icon of human pride and rebellion against God. And another reason I think that is because Babylon is mentioned again in chapter 20 or 21. There's a second oracle against them. But there's more to say on that. But let's think predominantly metaphorical. Also, figurative or literal, this is poetry. This is poetry that grabs our emotions, that presents images to us that are shocking, that are horrific, that are frightening, and that are supposed to be. What do we do with these images, particularly of destruction? 
Now, I was a middle school boy once, and I remember being on a basketball team, and we'd use words like, we are going to slaughter our competition. We're going to clean their clocks. We're going to wipe the floor with them. We're going to grind them into smithereens. And if you actually think about what those images represent, it's like, oh, that's really violent and graphic and doesn't at all belong in any sort of interaction with middle school boys. But what did we actually mean by the words that we were using? We mean that we're going to beat them in a game of basketball by at least eight points. You know, slaughter the competition. When we read the judgment poetry in the Bible, are we thinking literal, actual, this is going to happen? Or are we thinking figuratively, we're painting a picture? And it's not always clear. Because the sad fact of human history is that everything that we describe has actually happened. And that's really sad. But again, it doesn't necessarily mean that it has to be literal. This is the way that we use language. So, Historic, metaphorical, think metaphorical, literal, figurative, predominantly think figurative. And then the last thing is, you're not Babylon, which kind of feels weird, but I think we as maybe Western Americans or maybe humans in general, when I, when I read a judgment passage, I tend to put myself in the hot seat of being Babylon. And here's a threatening God coming to get me. But this oracle wasn't actually written for Babylon. It was written for Judah. It was written for God's people who are being oppressed and hurt and crushed by this foreign nation. And now they are hearing God's prophet speak of the doom of their enemies. This is good news for God's people. God is showing up to judge those who have judged you. So think metaphorical, think figurative, and think this is coming on people who oppose us. All right, and hopefully with those lenses we can hear a little bit. Aaron, Rebecca, will you guys come up um, and share God's word with us? A prophecy against Babylon that Isaiah son of Amoz saw. Raise a banner on a hilltop. Shout to them. Beckon to them to enter the gates of the nobles. I have commanded those I prepared for battle. I have summoned my warriors to carry out my wrath, those who rejoice in my triumph. Listen, a noise on the mountains, like that of a great multitude. Listen, an uproar among the kingdoms, like nations massing together. The Lord Almighty is mustering an army for war. They come from faraway lands, from the ends of the heavens, the Lord and the weapons of his wrath, to destroy the whole country. Wail, for the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. Because of this, all hands will go limp. Every heart will melt with fear. Terror will seize them. Pain and anguish will grip them. They will writhe like a woman in labor. They will look aghast at each other. 
and faces of flame. See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and destroy the sinners within it. The stars of heaven in their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. I will make people scarcer than pure gold, more rare than the gold of Ophir. Therefore, I will make the heavens tremble and the earth will shake from its place at the wrath of the Lord Almighty in the day of his burning anger. Like a hunted gazelle, like sheep without a shepherd, they will all return to their own people. They will flee to their native land. Whoever is captured will be thrust through. All who are caught will fall by the sword. Their infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes. Their houses will be looted and their wives violated. See, I will stir up against them the Medes, who do not care for silver and have no delight in gold. Their bows will strike down the young men. They will have no mercy on infants, nor will they look with compassion on children. Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms, the pride and glory of the Babylonians, will be overthrown by God, like Sodom and Gomorrah. She will never be inhabited or lived in through all generations. There no nomads will pitch their tents. There no shepherds will rest their flocks. But desert creatures will lie there. Jackals will fill her houses. There the owls will dwell, and there the wild goats will leap about. Hyenas will inhabit her strongholds, jackals her luxurious palaces. Her time is at hand, and her days will not be prolonged. The Lord will have compassion on Jacob. Once again, he will choose Israel and will settle them in their own land. Foreigners will join them and unite with the descendants of Jacob. Nations will take them and bring them to their own place. And Israel will take possession of the nations and make them male and female servants in the Lord's land. They will make captives of their captors and rule over their oppressors. On the day the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you, you will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. How the oppressor has come to an end! How his fury has ended! The Lord has broken the rod of the wicked, the scepter of the rulers, which in anger struck down peoples with unceasing blows, and in fury subdued nations with relentless aggression. All the lands are at rest and at peace. They break into singing. Even the junipers and the cedars of Lebanon gloat over you and say, now that you have been laid low, no one comes to cut a stand. The realm of the dead below is all astir to meet you at your coming. It rouses the spirits of the departed to greet you, all those who were leaders in the world. It makes them rise from their thrones, all those who were kings over the nations. They will all respond. They will say to you, You also have become weak as we are. You have become like us. All your pomp has been brought down to the grave, along with the noise of your harps. Maggots are spread out beneath you and worms cover you. How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of the dawn. You have been cast down to the earth. You who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. 
I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly, on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. Those who see you stare at you with torment in your face. Is this the man who shook the earth and made kingdoms tremble? The man who made the world a wilderness, who overthrew its cities and would not let his captives go home? All the kings of the nations lie in state, each in his own tomb. But you are cast out of your tomb like a rejected corpse. You are covered with the slain, with those pierced by the sword, those who descend to the stone to the pit, like a corpse trampled underfoot. You will not join them in burial, for you have destroyed your land and killed your people. Let the offspring of the wicked never be mentioned again. Prepare a place to slaughter his children for the sins of their ancestors. They are not to rise to inherit the land and cover the earth with their cities. I will rise up against them, declares the Lord Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants. I will turn her into a place for owls and into swampland. I will sweep her with the broom of destruction. Declares the Lord Almighty. The Lord Almighty has sworn. Surely as I have planned, so it will be. And as I have purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land. On my mountains I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is the pain determined for the whole world. This is the hand stretched out over all nations. For the Lord Almighty has purposed, and who can thwart him? His hand is stretched out, and who can turn it back? See, the day of the Lord is coming, a cruel day, with wrath and fierce anger to make the land desolate and to destroy the sinners within it. He's not coming for no reason. And the stars of the heaven and their constellations will not show their light. The rising sun will be darkened. The moon will not give its light. It's going to be a dark day. I will punish the world for its evil, the wicked for their sins. I will put an end to the arrogance of the haughty and will humble the pride of the ruthless. The power of God is going to be put on display as he's coming for the wicked and the sinner and the unjust. Are we scared? Are we frightened of him? It's interesting. In chapters 7 through 12, last week. We looked at God's promise for his people. Judgment is coming, but God's going to save them, and he's going to bring the Messiah, and they're going to go home. Here in chapters 13 and 14, we see judgment on Babylon and a taunt against Babylon's king, and right in the middle, there's this little section of hope that God's going to remember his people. He's going to have compassion on Jacob, and it says in verse 3 that on the day that the Lord gives you relief from your suffering and turmoil and from the harsh labor forced on you. You will take up this taunt against the king of Babylon. It is imagery that reminds us of the Exodus. 
You guys remember the story? The current world superpower that was oppressing and crushing and murdering the people of God was invaded by deity, by the God who created heaven and earth, who told a king that thought he was God, those people that you are subjecting, they're mine, let them go. And when he wouldn't, God took them by force and he led them out. And in the pinnacle crowning achievement moment where God's people are trapped against a Red Sea and here comes the worst army that the world had seen to that point, God does this miracle. He opens up the Red Sea and his people cross through on dry land with a wall of water on their right and on their left. And when the Egyptian army tries to pursue those waters that was salvation for God's people became judgment for those who were chasing them. And the Egyptians are washed away. And on the far side of the shore, God's people shout and sing to God because salvation for God's people meant judgment for the people that were oppressing them. And we're seeing that image again here, only now it's Babylon. Only now it's this arrogant, pompous, proud nation that has mistreated and murdered the people of God. And God is coming for them. You know, it's interesting I said, do we think like more historic lines or do we think more figurative, metaphorical lines with this passage? Because like, why are we talking about Babylon? The first 39 chapters of Isaiah, the focus is on a different world empire named Assyria. But look what happens right at the end of the passage. I will rise up against them, declares Yahweh Almighty. I will wipe out Babylon's name and survivors, her offspring and descendants, declares the Lord. I will turn her into a place of owls and swampland. These people will be no more. Their land will be worthless. And I will sweep her with a broom of destruction, declares Yahweh Almighty. Yahweh Almighty has sworn, surely as I have planned, so it will happen. As I have uh, purposed, so it will happen. I will crush the Assyrian in my land on my mountains. I will trample him down. His yoke will be taken from my people and his burden removed from their shoulders. This is a plan determined for the whole world. This is a hand stretched out over all nations. We went from talking about Babylon and it just kind of morphed into Assyria. Like Assyria, you'd think they'd have a larger like oracle against them than three verses, but I I think what's going on is that Assyria has become so morally corrupt that they have become the new Babylon of its time. They are the pompous, arrogant people that God is going to judge. And later on, there's other world empires that rise up, and you know what? They become the new Babylon because they become the pompous, arrogant ones who oppress the people of God. And you know what? God is going to judge them, and we should be scared. And there's these poetic images that are really graphic and really horrifying. I don't know about you, but especially the ones about the destruction and killing of children, like these are, these are shocking images and they are meant to horrify us. Like they're doing their job. Look at if your stomach just kind of clenches up and you're like, ew, oh no. And, and I want to say so badly that these are just figurative images. But a, a brief jaunt through human history tells me that we have done this to ourselves over and over and over again. That for thousands of years, we have murdered women and children, and women have been raped and violated. These things happen, and they happen today. Welcome to the 21st century, when more slaves 
are in existence today on planet Earth than at any other time in human history, where women and children continue to be beaten and raped and oppressed. And I wish it was figurative. I don't know. But this seems to be the point of the image, that this evil people, this wicked king and his descendants, that line is going to be cut off, that one day there will be no more people like it, that these people who are a cancer on humanity will be fully cut out and removed, and there will be none left, and it will be good news for the world when they're gone. It's also interesting to note to me that in in 7 through 12 and in 13 and 14, we have a same image given to us of God's people coming home. But one is is more of a, a joyous occasion. Why? Because a good king has come. Messiah has come. God's Christ has come. And in 13 and 14, God's people get to come home. Why? Because the evil, arrogant, proud king has been judged. And I think these are two pictures of the same event. We have a contrast of kings. When Messiah rises, God's people get to come home. And when the proud king falls, God's people get to come home. The Messiah, he's someone who fears God. He does justice and righteousness for the poor and the oppressed. When he reigns, all of creation will be at peace again. And descriptions like the lion will lie down with the lamb. But this proud king, he destroys his people and his land. He doesn't fear God. He wants to be God. And God's going to bring him down. And they're both called branches. This very significant image throughout the book of Isaiah. There will come forth a shoot from the stump of Jesse, a branch from his roots. You know, I'm going to go out on a limb and say that Jesus is the one that we're talking about here. And from Jesus, everything can be hung and supported But the proud, arrogant king, he's a false messiah, a rejected branch, an anti-Christ. You can't trust him for anything. And it's not for no reason that God's judgment is coming upon this king. Look at how he is depicted. It says that he beat down the nations in wrath with unceasing blows, like like a bully, like this wicked man who is just pounding and pummeling people, and he's hitting them, and he's hitting them again, and he's hitting them again, and he's hitting them again, and he's not stopping, and he will not stop until someone makes him. And one day, when he's struck down, the whole world can rest, because he's gone. And I love Isaiah's imagery of the grave personified. Like, the grave itself gets up and is playing host to the king of Babylon, Like, wake up, everyone. We have company. And he gets all the kings up, and they make this this entourage, this welcoming committee to welcome the proud king to come and lay in the bed of maggots that we have laid for him. You have become like us. This man who made himself out to be God is brought low. This morning star, son of the dawn, in the King James, that word was Lucifer, so we kind of think through like the fall of Satan, but it's talking about a proud human being who wants to make himself out to be God. And he's described like the star Venus. I don't know if you've ever seen it early in the morning. Before the sun crests the hill, sometimes you see the star Venus and it's just shining bright. And it just starts to rise higher and higher into the heavens 
until the sun comes out. And then it is totally eclipsed. <laughs> Just it can't stand up next to the brightness of the sun. And it's as if this proud thing fell and just disappeared from sight. And that is the picture that we get of this proud king who would be God. He's laid low and he's gone. Let his line never more be heard of. God's got a plan. No one is going to stop it. And this is going to involve the whole earth. He will break the evil ones in the land. God's power is coming against evil. And it's a bit frightening. But if I was going to say like three truths for us to, to just get from chapters from 13, one is that God is going to humble human pride. Human pride, anything in us or anyone else, be it a government or an organization or a person that thinks that, that my privileges, that, that my desires and wants and needs are more important than your wants and your needs and your life and your safety, that, that you exist to serve me and that you don't really matter. And whether we're doing that to individuals or to, to nations or people groups, it doesn't matter. Any human pride that would exalt itself against God that says, you know, God, I don't want to listen to you. I want to be God. I want to decide what's right and wrong for me to do. I want to decide who goes where and, and this, this power that just corrupts people. God's going to bring those people down, and He's going to set things right, and He's going to set it straight. We also see that God's going to have compassion on His people. You know, one of the judgments against Babylon, it says God is going to make them like Sodom and Gomorrah, these towns that were just totally overthrown by God, totally destroyed, totally wiped out. But you know what? Back in chapter 1, we're told that if God had not left us a few survivors, we would have been like Sodom and Gomorrah. The sad truth and the sad reality is that God's people are just like everyone else. Even in these oracles of the nations, chapters 13 through 23, Judah, Jerusalem, is in chapter 22. They are just like everyone else. And the only reason that this judgment and this destruction that is coming upon the world doesn't happen to us is because we have a gracious, compassionate God who forgives our sins and who will save some people because he's good, not because we deserve it. We deserve judgment. He gives us life. He will have compassion. And there are some amazing, astounding, comforting passages in the book of Isaiah that we get to read. Chapter 40 being perhaps my favorite, I am very excited for it. But right now, in this passage, I want to focus in on the last one, that God has a day when he will judge human evil and sin. And I just want to camp here for a little bit because I think it's a message that we need to hear. I don't particularly like it. But again, my goal here is like a theological workplace safety video. I want to frighten us into treating God with the respect and obedience he deserves. We should look out because he's angry. He is righteously angry and he's coming to deal with evil and sin. So how do we respond? One, fear God. The Proverbs say this is the beginning of wisdom. Fear God. The beginning of knowledge that we should be frightened. Again, not running away, not having nightmares, not wanting nothing to do with him, 
but that we should be so afraid of him that we want to be on his team. <laughs> like, no matter what, other, what else happens, I'm going to be on your side, okay? Because I don't want to be on the team that goes up against you. They're not going to last. They're not going to stand. Can I be on your side? We want to fear God and repent. It's a church word, I know. It means you're living life according to your own standards, according to your own ways, and you think it's fine, but God has laid out a different standard in his word for us. He says, this is the way that life should be lived. Do you want to go live over there? Stop. Turn around. Go back. That's what the word repent means. It means like, stop. His judgment on sin and evil, which is what you're doing, is terrifying. Don't do that. Come back. He's made a way. That we might humble ourselves that we might refuse to make more of ourselves than we actually are, that we might acknowledge the humanity and the image of God in every person that we encounter, that we might submit to God and His will because He has ordered the universe according to His plans and His purposes. And the fact that people are screwing it up really makes Him angry. And lastly, that we would wait and hope because judgment on evil and sin is actually good news for God's people. It's actually good news. There's a lot of jobs in this world that I don't want to have. I don't want to be president of the United States. I think that would be awful for me and everybody else. They can have it. But another job I really, really, really don't want is to be a content monitor for Facebook or other social media groups. I don't know if you're aware, but when someone flags a photo on Facebook as being offensive or inappropriate, there's a person eventually on the other end of that line that checks those. So there's people who sit in front of a computer all day and every four to eight seconds, another image comes onto their screen. And we're not even talking about all the, the sex and weird stuff that, that people post up online. We're talking about images of, of violence and cruelty and hatred against men against women, against children, against animals. I heard the story of one of them, a new horror movie had come out that featured someone's head exploding and the person says, I can't watch that because I saw that in real life. They every day are exposed to the absolute worst of humanity and the worst things that presently go on in our world. And you know what? They can't do anything about it except just delete it. But you know what? God sees it all. He knows it all. There's no tear that is shed that escapes his notice. There is no cry that goes unheard by him. And you know what? He cares and he's angry about it and he's going to do something about it and people better look out. Because one day he's showing up and it will not go well for them. And that will be good news for everyone that they were mistreating. That will be good news. I don't know if you guys remember back May 2nd, 2011, when we got word that the Navy SEAL team had taken out Osama bin Laden. There was a lot of reactions on, on, across the spectrum on that day. But there was a vast segment of the world that was rejoicing that someone evil had been removed and taken out. That was good news for some people. This 
This is just a little bit of delay. I don't know about you. I get way more emails in my inbox than I, I wish to. But I saw this and I wanted to share with it. On December 9th here in the United States, the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals will be hearing testimony about how Nevada has been potentially complicit with slavery because of their prostitution laws. So yeah, it's kind of random, but check this out. So underage girls who have been trafficked into the state of Nevada and put in brothels and who have been abused and used for years and years, and it's hard to prosecute because Nevada has legalized prostitution, are going to testify. And the hope that these people are after is that these laws will be overturned, that all of the economic advantages that people are making off of the flesh of their fellow human beings will be gone, and these people will be set free. And I'm, I'm seriously excited about it. I don't know how the, the lawsuit will turn out, but just imagine if people were set free and judgment came upon the people who are profiting from that. That would be good. You know, this notion of divine vengeance is, is hard for us to take. It makes us uncomfortable. It's scary. It's hard. And, and there are some in this country and across the world who will say that God's not like that. That God loves people too much to send them to hell. He loves them too much to judge sin and evil. Like, he's not going to do anything about this. And so we, we should just forgive people. We should just not respond with violence because God's not violent like that. He's not. Well, there's a, a Croatian theologian by the name of Miroslav Volf who says differently. Volf, who unfortunately writes with really big weird words and is very hard to understand at times, makes the argument that we don't respond with violence, not because God is nonviolent, but because God is violent against evil. We don't need to be violent because he's going to take care of it. And this is what Wolf says. Just a second as we go to a, a full slide for those who are online. Here we go. Wolf says this. My thesis is that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance. My thesis will be unpopular with a man in the West, but imagine speaking to people as I have, whose cities and villages have been first plundered and then burned and leveled to the ground, whose daughters and sisters have been raped, whose fathers and brothers have had their throats slit. Your point to them that we shouldn't retaliate? Why not? I say that the only means of prohibiting violent by, violence by us is to insist that violence is only legitimate when it comes from God. Violence thrives today, secretly nourished by the belief that God refuses to take the sword, that He's going to do nothing about it. It takes the quiet of a suburb for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence is a result of a God who refuses to judge. He says, you got to be in like Pleasantville, America to believe that. In a scorched land, soaked in the blood of the innocent, the idea will invariably die like other pleasant captivities of the liberal mind. If God were not angry at injustice and deception and did not make a final end of violence, that God would not be worthy of our worship. 
And perhaps he's overstating the case there at the end. I'm not sure, but he makes a good point. If God did nothing, I don't know what kind of God would he be. But he's going to, because that's who he is. He's going to deal with evil and sin, and that is good news for God's people. It really is. So again, guys, I, I hope that we're frightened. I hope that we're scared. I hope that we're sober. I hope that we, we don't, again, run away from God, but that we run towards Him. That we would repent, that we'd be humble, that we'd wait and hope for Him. Why? Because He has sent His Son into the world. That His wrath against sin and evil was so great, and yet, in the midst of it, He sent Jesus into the world to bear that wrath for our sakes, to bear His punishment that Jesus took it upon His shoulders so we don't have to. Why? Because no one can stand against it. It is overwhelming and terrifying, and it is coming, and we should be frightened. But he has made a way of escape through his son. So let's run to him. Let us accept the salvation that he offers in Jesus because his judgment is terrifying. He is righteously angry. He's coming to deal with evil and sin. And I hope we fear him. I do. Let's pray. Father, God, you're stronger than we know. Your wrath is fiercer than we can imagine. And and God, sometimes you're just really big and really scary. And we thank you for your son because without him, we couldn't be in your presence. We would despair of life itself, but you, you have saved your people. So Lord, let us wait for you and hope that you are bringing justice to this world. Let us wait for you when we see the atrocities committed by our fellow human beings. Let us hope in you when we see the destruction that we ourselves are causing on this earth. And let us celebrate that you are taking care of evil and sin. And that is good news for your people. Lord, let us be afraid of you. And treat you with the reverent fear that is your due and respond to you appropriately, knowing that when we do, it is good for us, that lives flourish when we treat you with respect and care that you deserve. God be with us.